This is the Weight and Healthcare Newsletter. If you appreciate the content here, please consider supporting the newsletter by subscribing and or sharing at weightandhealthcare.com. This series is part of the work I'm doing with Weight Inclusive Nutrition and Dietetics, or WIND, to create a comprehensive response to the disastrous American Academy of Pediatrics, or AAP, guidelines for higher weight children. I'm part of the team that is analyzing the research that the AAP claims supports their recommendations, like this today, and I'll be publishing my breakdowns here as well. Today I'm looking into the study, New Insights About How to Make an Intervention in Children and Adolescents with Metabolic Syndrome, Diet, Exercise, Versus Changes in Body Composition, A Systematic Review of RCT, by Albert Perez, et al. Quick Overview This is a meta-analysis of nine small studies with significant heterogeneity, which is to say that the fact that the studies are set up so differently makes the choice to attempt a meta-analysis questionable. There is uncritical and unexplored conflation of correlation and causation between body size and cardiometabolic factors, as well as between the impacts of behavior changes and body size changes on cardiometabolic factors. In short, their findings do not support their conclusions. Here's a deeper dive. The paragraphs that I will quote are from the study, and they may contain weight stigma and be triggering, so please do take care of yourself. Introduction. Their goal was to find what interventions created the largest change in body composition in patients 19 and younger with metabolic syndrome, or MS. They start by giving a definition of MS. Metabolic syndrome, also known as insulin resistance syndrome, can be defined as a series of physiological, biochemical, and metabolic factors that increase the risk for cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes. These factors include insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes or glucose intolerance, hypertension, and central, quote, obesity. They then admit that, quote, MS in the pediatric population is difficult to define, end quote, and that adaptations from the juvenile population have been applied for years, leading to, quote, excessive variety in diagnosis of MS, end quote, leading to an occurrence between 0.9% and 11.4%, depending on what definition is used. It should be noted that the inclusion of, quote, obesity in definitions of MS is questionable as, unlike every other factor which has shared symptomology, quote, obesity is simply a shared height-weight ratio. This also creates confusion in examining, quote, treatment since simply changing the height-weight ratio is assumed, often without evidence, to create health benefits. They also acknowledge that, quote, The current definition of, quote, obesity based on weight and height cannot accurately identify all causes of, quote, obesity-related risk of CVD, cardiovascular disease. People with normal BMI, body mass index, and high content of body fat, BF, are at greater risk of metabolic disturbance, systemic inflammation, and mortality. Thus, the metabolic alteration observed in individuals with normal weight metabolic, quote, obesity can only be due to the increase of body adiposity not detected by the BMI, end quote. False. Note here that they can only reach this conclusion by clinging to the concept of, quote, obesity through the use of correlation. Their statement fails to point out that many, quote, obese people do not have MS. But instead of noting that using a height-weight ratio isn't appropriate for assessing risk, they label people with, quote, normal BMI and high body fat, normal weight metabolic obese? This is not scientific. The root of the problem is the made-up concept of, quote, obesity propped up by the extremely problematic concept of body mass index. Their conclusion that metabolic alteration, quote, can only be due to the increase of body adiposity not detected by the BMI, end quote, is not supported by evidence. They do not offer a causal mechanism for this, only that they are correlated. In fact, it could be due to things like perception of weight stigma, weight cycling, or other factors. In Table 4, they offer interventions for changing body composition. 
They cite position papers and guidelines, none of which shows any proof that the intervention suggested can create significant long-term weight loss. They grade their own evidence as D-level. Quote, Current evidence suggests that the intervention of physical exercise in adolescents with, quote, overweight and, quote, obesity improves body composition, changes body fat, and therefore could improve some cardiometabolic factors, end quote. Again, this shows author bias toward weight loss. In fact, the intervention of physical exercise is shown in adults to improve cardiometabolic risk factors directly, i.e. in Gazer and Engadi, which I talk about in another piece. The notion that physical exercise creates health benefits through weight loss is an assumption with no evidentiary basis. Quote, in lifestyle interventions, the authors of these studies relate the changes in body weight with the cardiometabolic results, end quote. The study they cite to support this, Effectiveness of Lifestyle Interventions in Child, quote, Obesity, Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis by Ho et al., finds that lifestyle interventions can lead to improvements in cardiometabolic outcomes and, at least short-term, weight loss. The studies they examine are short-term, but more importantly, they did not find that the weight loss actually caused the cardiometabolic outcomes, and thus they don't know whether it was the weight loss or the behavior changes that preceded the weight loss that improved cardiometabolic outcomes. They claim, quote, the most traditional dietary patterns, including the Mediterranean diet, are associated with better metabolic profiles, end quote. Again, while eating patterns themselves are correlated with better metabolic profiles, that may be a direct relationship, and it would not be valid to assume that weight loss mediates that relationship. In terms of pharmacotherapy, they admit that, quote, the advantage of using medication and interventions for the management of weight loss in patients aged 2 to 18 is not yet clear, end quote. They offer four points to justify their review. First, quote, due to the prevalence observed in children and adolescents with MS, end quote. Again, they admit that they have no idea what that prevalence is, just that it's somewhere between 0.9% and 11.4%, depending on what definition is being used. Two, quote, the search for which dietary interventions and physical exercise obtains greater changes in body composition in children and adolescents with MS, as described by the quote overweight, quote obesity, and type 2 diabetes guidelines, end quote. Here, again, they are assuming that weight change will lead to health changes, ignoring the possibility that health-supporting behaviors offer direct health benefits. Three, quote, the relationship between the changes in body composition and cardiometabolic risk factors, end quote. Their analysis is not actually created to determine anything about this relationship. They have no way to determine whether any cardiometabolic factor changes are due to behavior changes or body composition changes. Four, quote, adhering to the WHO Global Action Plan and the reduction, which is focused on the factors related to the diagnosis of MS, end quote. Both studies they cite for this discuss the impact of lifestyle factors on MS, not the impact of body size changes. Their results. For their meta-analysis, they started with 1,781 studies, but were only able to include nine of them, or 0.51%. The nine studies ranged from three to 18 months, meaning that none of them was long enough to capture the weight gain that is typically seen between 24 and 50 months. All nine studies were quite small, including from 25 to only 150 participants. The total of all nine studies was only 630 subjects. Given the small number of RCTs and the significant heterogeneity in their design, different definitions of MS, different measurements of body size, different interventions, etc., a meta-analysis is, again, a questionable strategy. The study that showed the greatest change in body composition, DeMello et al., only included 30 subjects and only 15 in the intervention group. 
The study began with 43 participants, but 13 of those dropped out. The study's goal was to determine whether aerobic training and resistance training provided greater benefits on cardiometabolic health than aerobic training alone. While they measured body composition, they did not find or claim to find that the weight loss, rather than the behaviors that were the actual intervention, created the change. The study defines, quote, long-term as one year, despite the known tendency of weight to be regained in years two to five, and the fact that nobody but study authors who were desperate to claim long-term efficacy of their intervention would define one year as long-term in human subjects. The study conclusion is that, quote, these findings suggest a role for aerobic training and resistance training in the control of metabolic syndrome in pediatric populations, and, quote, they conclude nothing at all about body composition change. In the discussion, they say, quote, it has been demonstrated that the changes in body composition produce favorable changes in the metabolic illness risk factors in children, adolescents, and adults, end quote. The single study they cite in no way supports this statement. The study, Impact of Weight Regain on Metabolic Disease by Kroger et al., is a study of adults that begins by admitting that almost everyone regains the weight that they lost. The study seeks to determine the impacts of weight regain or lack thereof on cardiometabolic changes. They make no distinction between the impacts of behaviors versus that of weight change and interventions or during weight regain. For example, when people begin regaining weight, do they then abandon their health-supporting behaviors since they assume that they aren't, quote, doing any good because they were told that the health benefits come not from behaviors but from body size changes? Next, they include practical recommendations for the design of future clinical trials of patients with overweight, quote, obesity, type 2 diabetes, and MS. Given the multitude of issues with this study, I would argue that these authors are not capable of providing scientifically solid recommendations for future trials, and I think their recommendations prove me right. They are entirely based on the assumption that weight change will create cardiometabolic health changes, ignoring completely the possibility that the behavior changes that precede both the health changes and the at least short-term weight changes may be responsible for both, as was found for adults in study. In the section, Limitations and Strengths of the Systematic Review, they list one of the strengths as, quote, the range of search dates of this systematic review, having found 1,781 clinical trials from 2005 to 2017, end quote. I would say that this might be more of a strength if more than nine of these trials would have actually been included in the meta-analysis. They also list as a strength, quote, the trial has been carried out and overseen by professionals versed in dietary intervention and physical exercise for patients with, quote, overweight, quote, obesity, and type 2 diabetes, end quote. I would again argue that this is a weakness. When all of the authors are coming from a myopic focus on the weight-centric paradigm, they fail to question their own biases and assumptions. For example, they consistently make the absolutely rudimentary mistake of assuming causation from correlation. In their conclusions, they state, it is proposed to follow the guidelines proposed for patients with, quote, overweight, quote, obesity, and type 2 diabetes, and extrapolate these strategies as recommendations to the future clinical trials designed in patients with MS, end quote. This conclusion is not supported by their data. Nine studies with 18 months or less of follow-up on less than a thousand subjects of varying ages, diagnostic criteria, interventions, and intervention success measures with no way to measure long-term harm and no comparison to weight-neutral interventions do not justify a treatment recommendation of any kind. Did you find this post helpful? You can subscribe for free to get future posts delivered direct to your inbox or choose a paid subscription to support the newsletter and the work that goes into it and get special benefits. Go to weightandhealthcare.com and click subscribe.